Nobody's born incredible. People who do incredible things simply took the right steps. This is our journey. This is the hunt for incredible. Today, we're in the studio with a great friend of mine, Ryan Gerardo. He's built a sports AI company that's gotten an investment from Mark Cuban, a partnership with Nike, and much more. Now, this is the first of two episodes where we talk about his journey, including how he got Mark Cuban on as an investor, how he validated the idea on a small scale, and more. In the next episode, we dive into how he would do it all over again with no money and no connections. So be sure not to miss that one. All right, without further ado, here's my conversation with Ryan Gerardo. Cool. Let's kick things off. Ryan, welcome to the show. Man, I am excited to be here, Gideon. I'm super pumped to have you. Okay, so I wanted to start off um, just to give everybody a bit more context. Tell us about Cerebro and some of the recent milestones that you guys have hit. Yeah, so our mission is to build the world's largest repository of basketball box scores. So the ultimate vision is to have the most authoritative uh, player career resumes possible. Um, we basically do this by going in and collecting data at all of these different events that players are playing in, all these different competitions all over the world. Um, and then we assign their performances on the basis of the box scores. We rate their performances on like a gold, silver, or bronze medal basis. And then we kind of expound and uh, tell players like, or, or decision makers, um, these, uh, we have five skill categories and we tell them, you know, specifically what was it they were good at. And so the vision is to be able to serve this entire ecosystem of basketball stakeholders. So we started, um, talk, you know, speaking of milestones, we, we started with, uh, colleges. Um, we expanded that out to agencies. Um, now recently we've brought on our first NBA teams. Um, so that's a big milestone. And then kind of looking ahead, um, our biggest milestone is actually going to be serving players themselves. Like for a long time, there's been this, um, in our view, kind of a misconception that that numbers are nerdy. And I mean, it it can be pretty true, but the fact is, like, the numbers are telling. It's in basketball, we always say it's like the naked eye, like these traditional naked eye scouts versus the numbers. Um, and the reality of it is the two go hand in hand. So we believe that you should use numbers to kind of like qualify performances at a very high level and then use the naked eye to like to better evaluate. So what we're really excited about is the ability for players themselves to be able to understand their performances and have the ability to advocate for themselves. And we see that coming in uh, sometime during uh, calendar year 2023. And what are, what are some of the more uh, recent milestones? Um, obviously there's, you know, multiple dimensions of a business. So speaking, you know, outwardly, like adding our first NBA clients was, was a really big deal. Obviously, um, having Mark Cuban come on board was a big deal, but you know, if you kind of, if you look backwards, um, you know, we, we started during the pandemic, uh, and our, our very first, um, we, we started by kind of like selling a, a, a Google spreadsheet. Um, and we were fortunate enough to have, uh, former NBA head coach, former Michigan head coach. Uh, John Beeline invest in us. Uh, he led our, our very first fundraising round. We raised about 500K friends and family um, with his name. Uh, and then we, we came in to raise another pre-seed round. Um, Mark jumped on board, which was, which was really exciting and really humbling, having, having grown up as a Mavericks fan myself. Um, and then, yeah, we were able to, able to raise a, a significant uh, amount of money on the back of that as well. Um, and so, yeah, uh, in 2023, we'll be raising our official seed round, which will be exciting too. Before we dive in, 
can you share that Mark Cuban, the original, the initial, I should say, yes. uh, touch point with Mark Cuban <laughs> ages ago? Yes. Well, it, anybody that's ever kind of like tried to reach out to Mark will tell you that the best way to get in contact with him is by email. And it is absolutely true. <laughs> um, he's incredible. I honestly don't know how he does it. Uh, he manages to read almost every email um, even from a random kid like me. So at the time, I had I had started this driveway basketball league. Uh, and um, to be honest with you, I was looking for investors. I was trying to figure out like like how I was going to take it to the next level. And, and when was this? Oh, uh, man. So I was I was 18. This had to be like 2008, 2009 in, the, in that time frame. I think you and I had like just met. Yeah, yeah. Like we, we had just met around that time. So uh, yeah, around that time frame. Um, and yeah, I, I sent Mark this excessively long, uh, email, the, the opposite, absolute opposite of concise. Um, but yeah, I sent him this really, really long email. Uh, I think he read it. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, he just sends me like a, a few words in response, not interested. Uh, but nonetheless, <laughs> like, um, actually getting a response, you know, like, Man, he does he does better than I do at re- yeah. responding to emails. To be honest with you, dude, what I love about that so much is it almost doesn't even matter that initially he said like no thanks, thanks but no thanks because yeah. it was just the, yeah. the fact that you went for it. Yeah, right. Like I think so often people they they look at something that they want to go for and then they decide not to because they're worried about rejection. For sure. But the fact of the matter is the worst thing that can happen is you end up exactly where you were before you even sent that email. So totally. you might as well just shoot your shot totally. and you exercise that that engagement with discomfort a little bit so that you get comfortable with it and then you can do a lot more. 100%. I mean, yeah, you know, in so many areas of life it's so easy to uh, you know, remain introverted and to uh, and to to avoid taking your shot, but I mean, the, the fact is you're going to miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And, mm. you know, you if you truly believe and have conviction in whatever it is you're about to say, like, I recommend you say it. Um, you know, there's a there's a, uh, a growing methodology uh, around building in public. And in some cases, like being able to celebrate some of, celebrates maybe the wrong word, but like, being willing uh, to be vulnerable enough to have some of your failures be in public and build an audience, honestly, as yeah. along that journey from one step to the next to the next, because you know one day you one day you will again if, if you're convicted about this and you believe that that genuinely believe that you're right. Like th- there's a victory coming. You just have to hang in there long enough to get there and be willing to iterate some cases in a potentially embarrassing way. I like where this is segueing. Cerebro was started during COVID, which is yeah. super cool, super killer. There are a lot of really interesting studies. Ryan Holiday, um, in his book, um, The Obstacle is the Way, he mentions a bunch of incredibly impactful companies that were started during crises. For sure. But I definitely also want to touch on the buildup towards that, right? It wasn't like, you know, you hadn't done any prep work, and then during COVID, yeah. you had this genius idea, and now you're this, you've accomplished these incredible things and have partnerships with Nike and all sorts of other cool stuff. Can you share, you know, some of those original stories, even starting from that that driveway league that you threw together? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the funny thing about uh, any degree of success, and I would say, you know, we're still in the process of, like, becoming, quote-unquote, successful, but... Um, any, 
any degree of success, uh, there's, there's going to be um, failures along the way. And uh, oftentimes people may feel like, hey, this happened overnight. Like somebody sees the Cuban press release and thinks, oh, you know, this was a company and they go back and look like this is a company that was started in 2021. Okay. So it was a good idea. Mark, you know, Mark jumped in and like now it's taking off or whatever. And, you know, the fact is to your point, it took a, it took a long time to earn that opportunity. Right. Um, so start, yeah, sure. Starting back in, in my driveway, that original concept uh, <laughs> that I, that I tried and, and failed miserably to, to pitch Mark on. But, um, yeah, you know, I'd started a, a, a driveway, a basketball league in my driveway when I was, uh, about 13 years old. I'm pretty sure half the school thought I was crazy for doing <laughs> it. Um, the other half loved it. It turned into a thing while I was in high school and, um, it was pretty cool. You know, we had like a, we had a DJ, we had chairs all around the court. We had lights. We had, uh, built my driveway out to be like a full court with like basketball court lines painted on it. Um, it become a, like I said, it kind of became a thing. So like people would barbecue and we'd do fireworks. It was awesome. Like on, honestly, like it was, uh, I, I, I would be lying to you if I, if I told you that that wasn't at least tied for the most fun I've ever had during my yes. quote unquote career. Right. But, um, yeah, you know, like we, we had to, to figure out whether that was a legitimate business or not. Um, after I graduated high school, obviously I tried to raise some money, try to get some investors around it. Um, but you know, oftentimes you're, you're able to, you're, you're able to make things work kind of according to the dimensions of your circumstances. Right. Um, so Mark said, no, a lot of people said, no, we didn't raise any money. Um, but we shoestringed it out. Right. Um, and so, yeah, we, we turned that into uh, into a statewide basketball league, like an adult rec league here in Texas. Um, we had about 1,000 players at our largest. Um, and then I was uh, fortunate enough to be acqui-hired by a, a company out of Chicago and went to run adult rec leagues for them. And kind of around that time began to realize uh, all of these all these leagues all over the country needed uh, they, they needed a quantitative element to them because even though they're just adult rec leagues, you know, if you say that, that you're intermediate and I do too, but you made a basket for the first time yesterday and I played college basketball, like we are not equal matches, but yet if we both signed up as free agents and paid our hundred dollars, like we're both going to be kind of pissed off around what kind of experience we're going to walk away with. Like, so, um, we, we, we realized that there was this, uh, this need to quantify our performances so we could kind of map out if player A plays B and B plays C, like how would A and C potentially play against each other? Um, and this was, th this was, uh, around seven or eight years ago. Um, so I, I quit, I quit where I was working at the time and, uh, went to work for my dad to pay to pay my bills, and then uh, in in aviation, um, and then at night we started building this this app. Um, started with adult rec leagues, but one day we were we were uh, we were testing it, um, and I had a I had a grassroots basketball scout walk up to me and say, "Hey, we don't even have like a quantitative component in competitive youth basketball," um, and that's kind of when my when my eyes were opened and uh, jumped jumped you know both feet in on figuring out how we were going to go collect stats at event at these at these youth events uh, and that turned out to be its own beast that I tried my best to tame for about five years prior to the uh, prior to the pandemic um, at which time gratefully like uh, people began to realize how important collecting stats were and so we were able to kind of shift 
away from my last startup ePlay, which was focused on collecting stats into Cerebro, which is focused on aggregating stats from multiple data collection sources. Um, so yeah, you know, like the day that, that we make the Cuban announcement, it seems like, oh, this company that was founded, you know, a year and a half ago is, is experiencing some degree of success. But um, what qualified me or qualified anybody on our team to be the people that were worth that investment, it was those experiences. And I'm, I get, I just gave you my story, but there are other guys on our team, guys that spent two decades in the NBA, guys that built massive followings with, uh, with their you know draft analysis, right? Um, those guys earned the opportunity to be on that team too, well before the day mm -hmm. Cuban sent us a wire. There's so many things to tease out there. It's always easier to guide a moving object, right? And so you had this idea and you just started moving with it. And then that's how what evolved into one thing evolved into another until you got to the point where you had that golden goose idea and you had all the skills and expertise developed. You had the insights and awareness to actually identify, hey, this is something that's worth going for because you were familiar with the space. It wasn't just, you know, you heard about Bitcoin and so you thought like, oh, right. I could do that and you started a Bitcoin company. You know what I mean? Like you had all the context and awareness going into it, which is what teed you up for this 10-year overnight success. Well, ex exactly. And, you know, the, the other part, again, to me kind of comes back to belief. What are you going to be willing to stake your reputation on? Mm -hmm. um, in my opinion, you you want to be judicious about that, right? Like you don't want to jump out there and pretend like you're this Bitcoin expert if you really aren't. Um, so I, I think that the it, it's it's all about making making smart gambles when you when you put this when you put this this shingle out there and like I said kind of kind of stake your reputation on it and um, you 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 know what you know, you know what your what your background and your experience and your your passions are. I, I think um, to your point around guiding a moving object, what was I what was I chasing the entire time? What were we moving on? We were moving on something I was passionate about, I firmly believed in, and use that passion and that belief to ultimately build up the the professional knowledge base and experience and resume to earn the overnight success right. uh, opportunity essentially. Right. So we've talked previously about how on your journey to, you know, de developing these various ideas and how they were evolving and you just kept, you know, the, the proverbial getting punched in the face and still walking forward. You had yeah. many people tell you, hey, man, maybe you should just give this up. I think it's a cool idea. It's a fun oh, yeah. project, but I think it'd be best if you jump ship, maybe get into banking or something like you're yeah. great with numbers and all sorts of stuff. Friends, family. What, sure. what were... How are you evaluating the decision to make to say like, okay, are these people right or are they wrong and I need to follow this thing? Great question. The, the question. Uh, I mean, if I, if I were listening to this podcast, this would be, I think the one question that I was like actually trying to get out of it. Um, yeah, I think that, uh, I, I think Belief and passion are great, but where do you draw your line around like, hey, this is not a good idea 
or even if it is a good idea, like this is a hobby or this is a lifestyle business that I have to grow on a bootstrap basis. Like all of those paths are very real. And in some cases, like very valid businesses, like not everybody is des not every business is designed to be some massive VC backed, you know, corporation, right? So like, how do you uh, evaluate yourself along that spectrum? And again, I don't think it relates to passion and belief. I th actually think that there is something a lot more tangible in that th those are your customers, the people you are going to sell to. Are you actually talking to those people? Do you know those people? If you are not talking to them and you don't know them and understand their problems, then you don't really, you cannot make an earnest evaluation of where you fall on this spectrum of bad idea, hobby, lifestyle business, or, you know, megacorp, <laughs> you know, like there's just no way to understand where you're going with this. If you don't know, you, you can't, you can't solve a problem that you don't understand and you can't evaluate the value of that solution. Right. Yeah. So basically it was listening to the market, listening to the people around you and deducing for yourself yeah. how confident am I in the market versus the advice that I'm getting from these people who might not be as connected to that market. That, that, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. The, what, what those people never experienced was what I experienced during mm. those five years in those gyms when I'm standing there talking to parents and I'm talking, I'm talking to college coaches and I'm talking to agents. Like I'm talking to these people that are all saying, man, if only we had numbers, we could do so much better at our jobs. And then you take a step back and you're like, hey, you know, on the surface, this like this makes a lot of sense too. And you kind of start extrapolating, well, I think we could we could drive this much value. You find comps. Like these are the these are the 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 the, the guideposts that you're using. So when you walk into a conversation with your great aunt who's telling you like <laughs> Hey, you should be, you should be like my son who says that you should be doing this or who's doing this and is wildly successful. Like, don't get me wrong. It's, it's still a gamble, but you're, it, you're informed as to what your odds are mm. a lot more so than they probably even give you credit for. You right. Know? So I, I, I really think it's about uh, the, again, uh, uh, the, the, the belief and the passion are great, but where's the conviction? Like mm. when you're having this discussion with family member, a friend, um, the, you need to feel genuinely convicted that you are, that you're right. Or maybe you should be listening to their advice, to be honest with you. Yeah. And what is that conviction rooted in? Exactly. Right. Because your conviction was rooted in being fully immersed in the market and talking to people and engaging with people and getting feedback and shaping the idea with those users. And so that was what informed it. It's not like you just like, you had a gut feel because totally. you liked basketball and you're like, oh, this would, I personally, like some people, they say like scratch your own itch, which is a, a great strategy. It's yep. a really, really yes. great strategy. Yes. But something else to be mindful of is like now that you're scratching your own itch, maybe before you build the thing that scratches your itch, you go out and talk to people and see if they how also how many other need people that. have this itch? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> how, how much would they be willing to pay for it? How painful is it exactly? Exactly, and I think there are a handful of misnomers out there, like build it and they will come. And it's like, well, you can also go out talk to people and see if they'd be interested in you building it, right? Yes. So like maybe 
throw together an MVP, which is something else that I want to talk about. So an MVP for anybody who doesn't know is a minimum viable product. It's basically you're stripping down your product offering into just the core value proposition, right? So you don't have the bells and whistles or anything on it. You're offering a, a, a simplified or reduced offering of your product to the market and seeing if they can derive value from the core value that you're trying to offer. So I love your MVP story. Can you go ahead and share what that looked like? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, as, as an entrepreneur, I actually think that the MVP is one of the hardest things to do because it, at least if you're like me and, and you're not, you're not necessarily scratching your own itch, probably in that case, it's a bit easier uh, to, to develop your MVP. But in my case, it was a vision for this the 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 central hub of an ecosystem like i said of of all of these players and agents and scouts and college coaches and nba teams um and so that's a massive vision and uh you know you want to go attack the entire thing at once you literally want to go boil the ocean because as you've, especially if you spent time with these people, you're like, I know, I know exactly where, like, I know, ex- I, I think I know the exact problems that I need to go solve for them right now. And it's very tempting to try and go do everything. But I want to give some, I want to give a, a lot of credit to my co-founders who did a fantastic job of helping to rein that in and really focus down on, okay, so let's pick one of these stakeholders in this ecosystem that we can solve a problem for. Let's validate that because of course in, in our case, you know, gratefully again, we are chasing after this massive, like true venture opportunity. So, but, but, you know, just one f- solving one problem for one of these stakeholders is a very legitimate business in and of itself. So let's go solve one problem for one of them. And the one we chose was college coaches. Um, again, the time was the, uh, I'll, I'll set the stage here. The, the time was the pandemic, right? And the NCAA was passing new rules around, around COVID exemptions. So you had, um, you know, traditionally, of course, you, you have four years of collegiate eligibility. Those four years are going to generally run from your freshman to your senior year. Sometimes there's like a red, a red shirt where you chose to transfer from one school to the next, but you have to sit out a year as a penalty for that. It's not just like outright free agency. And then once your four years are up, you're gone. Well, and of course, the thing that's not said here is that there are high schoolers that are coming in beneath you and they are the new freshman. As you are an out, outgoing senior, there's a new freshman that comes in, right? And that is the way that this pipeline was flowing. Well, COVID shows up, college basketball gets canceled, and now they come up with this COVID exemption rule, which says, well, here's a free year for seniors uh, to be able to come back. So they added a COVID year of eligibility. And then on top of that, they, they said, and oh, by the way, we understand this problem of these freshmen coming in, so it's going to like overcrowd rosters. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll waive the red shirt rule um, permanently. So you don't have to, you don't red shirt anymore. Um, so the transfer portal all of a sudden becomes like backlogged with like all of these players that are either being pushed out of their programs or choosing to take advantage of this rule and jump from a bet, you know, one situation to another, your coach leaves that recruited you or whatever. Like maybe it's a new staff, they don't fit their system. So it became like free agency, like a free-for-all. And 
if you're a college coach, it's super, super competitive. So you have to get to these players first, like very quickly. It is really hard to go watch film on all of these players at one time. You know, you have almost like one in four, one in five players entering this transfer portal and you need to be like the first one to get to them, but there's too many names to, to come through. So our, we, we were, again, dating back to our ePlay days, um, which we kind of had made a decision to, to wind down ePlay because we knew like there aren't going to be any events for the next year for us to even go collect data at. It wasn't going great because, to be honest with you, nobody had really understood the value of data even at that point. So there was no customers still to sell to, which may come up a, a little bit later in what I would <laughs> what I would do differently. Um, but we we were we were fortunate that we got to know John Coach John Beeline during that time. And Coach, uh, he's he's been coaching for uh, Coach. Don't kill me on this, but uh, like forty ish, forty plus years. Uh, so he's been in the game for a long time and, and he's held, you know, head coaching positions. So he's had a lot of assistant coaches come through that, uh, essentially have gone out and it's in basketball, we call it a coaching tree, right? So all of like these people are uh, coaches are all around the, the, uh, the NCAA. And so he calls his coaching tree together and we ask him, Hey, you know, on a, on a zoom during the lockdown, we're like, Hey, what, what do you guys need? And they're like, well, this transfer portal thing, we need a way to find players quickly. So we spun up a Google spreadsheet and we started selling it like 25 bucks a month to all of the, to all these college programs. Um, and you know, the, the important thing here was the customers told us what they needed and they proved that they were willing to pay for something. And we know in this space that any, any advantage, anything that helps you eke out half of a win is is enormously valuable and of course there's huge money behind it you always know you can raise prices over over time if you can prove that there's a real need for your product and and those programs begin to build a dependency on it and so that was that was the thesis um and yeah we we started selling a google spreadsheet um we built it up to about 30 collegiate programs that were subscribing to it and even more important than the than the client number was the uh was, was the reliance that we saw them building on it. And, and some of the testimonials we ended up walking away with, you know, over a year later where we're hearing that, that, uh, that programs are citing us for helping make the players they found with us help them make the NCAA tournament a year later. Um, we later sold it to agents who found players first using, using, the, uh, using at the time, the, the spreadsheets and now our platforms. So that's kind of how we built, how, how we initially thought about an MVP and then how we ultimately, um, I, I would say settled on knowing that we, we had validated our, our thesis. I love that. I love that so much because so often people, when they think, you know, Oh, I, I want to release this first iteration and I want to see if the market likes it. They shy away from things like simple spreadsheets, just to aggregate data and all sorts of stuff because they feel like it doesn't, look and feel oh, professional yeah. enough and it's like the first release you're not going for professional you're going for validation right you're trying to validate the market uh reed hoffman has a famous quote if you're comfortable with your first release then you release too late 100 right so just get it out there make sure that you can actually that the market actually cares about what you're producing and then once you validated that then you can actually quantify what that investment's worth based on the traction that you're gaining with that mvp to decide whether or not you want to put, you know, 
whatever you need to into it to develop that next iteration. Totally. I mean, I would just say you care a lot more about what it looks like than your first customer does. Mm. Your first customer cares about the actual value that it is going to drive for them. And, uh, you know, if I, if I look back at some of the things that we did at ePlay, I, I think we were oftentimes guilty of focusing too much on what products looked like and allowing perfection to be the enemy of progress, to, to be honest with you. Like, we didn't get products out quick enough mm-hmm. to people. Um, and, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, the application is what's important. Yeah, yeah, big time. And I think it, it, it's worth taking a second to tease out. There are a couple schools of thought now that are, that are branching. So there's one school of thought, which is, okay, you just get the utility out there and the need should be strong enough that people don't care about anything but satisfying that need. They'll work with a janky product or something that feels ugly, whatever it is, just to deliver on that need. And then there's another school of thought um, that it tends to be more focused on you know, the, the average consumer, so less B2B, more like B2C, where they do care about that feel. And so there are instances where it is good to incorporate that feel, right? Because if you're going out to the average consumer and you're giving them a, a vitamin as opposed to a painkiller, right? Yes. It's, it's, then, sure. yeah. then you do need to lower that barrier of entry. But your product, I think you approached it brilliantly because you identified that need as being so high and you did start off with B2B and you are down the road transitioning yep. to B2C, which I'm super excited to dive into yep. also because yep. I think your your approach on this is absolutely brilliant. Um, which is, yeah, so your case, it's like, look, there's a clear need. We know that these people won't care about what the, the actual like, user experience is. It it's a painkiller, pain exactly. Yeah.